Skywatchers, thanks for listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Greg. And I'm Dara. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in May in our Cosmic Diary. So when you're looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. You should allow about 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. And if you are using a star app on your phone, then make sure to switch on the red night vision mode. In the very early hours after midnight on the 4th of May, catch the waning gibbous moon close to Saturn in the southeastern sky. By the following morning, the moon will have moved to settle between Saturn and Mars further to the east. And then, by the morning of the 6th of May, the moon will be tucked close beside Mars. Like the moon, these planets are bright enough to be seen with just your eyes, and look quite a lot like stars. Because planets move relatively quickly compared to background stars, planets were once known as the wandering stars. The Eto Aquarid meteor shower peaks on the night of the 6th of May and the early morning of the 7th. Now meteors are the dust left over from comets falling through or colliding with our atmosphere. They burn as they do so. The Eta Aquarids are the result of dust from comet 1P Halley, one of the two meteor showers associated with this famous comet, the other being the Orionids in October. They are so called because the meteors will appear to radiate or come from a point in the constellation of Aquarius. Unfortunately, this constellation will be below the horizon until the pre-dawn hours, and the moon is in its waning gibbous phase, so moonlight will be a bit of an interference, though the shower should still be fairly decent. It isn't the strongest shower, but some meteors could be seen in the eastern sky even when the radiant is below the horizon. Head to an open space and use your eyes to scan the sky. They are by far the best tool for this job. And just after midnight, in the early morning of the 9th of May, Jupiter reaches opposition. This is where Jupiter is on the exact opposite side of the Earth to the Sun, and it means that Jupiter is at its nearest point to the Earth, in its full phase, so it will be reflecting as much of the Sun's light as possible, making it very bright. In fact, it will be far brighter than its neighbouring bright stars, the blue-white star Spiker to its west, and the red star Antares to its east. Look towards the south, it's definitely worth catching. If you're looking for an even brighter planet to view, then try looking for Venus in the hour after sunset. Look towards the west where the sun will be setting and the unmistakably bright dot will be Venus. It's exceptionally bright due to its thick acidic clouds reflecting sunlight easily, not to mention that it's one of the closest planets to the Earth. It's visible throughout May, but if you wait until the 17th of May, you could catch a glimpse of the waxing crescent moon close by too. Now by the 21st, the moon will be very close to reaching first quarter, which occurs in the early hours of the 22nd. Look towards the southwest in the early evening, and beside it you could spot Regulus, the brightest star in the constellation of Leo. Regulus is a blue-white star, and just above is an orange-red coloured star called Algeaba. You'll conceivably see their colours once your eyes are adapted to the dark. Now, Algeaba is actually a binary star system, two stars orbiting close together, which can be separated with a telescope. But if you only have a pair of binoculars, then look towards Regulus. It is a multiple star system too, but instead it's four stars organised into two pairs. 
You could make out two points. One will be the brightest star, Regulus A, with what's thought to be a white dwarf companion in close proximity, and the second dimmer point will be the other two unresolvable stars. Now, towards the end of the month, on the 29th of May, the moon will reach its full moon phase. You'll be able to watch it from around when the sun sets, when it will creep above the southeastern horizon, all through the night and until just after sunrise, when the moon will be setting in the southwest. It will be beside the bright red star Antares, and if you wait until the early hours of the 30th of May, there's a lineup of bright objects from west to east. Spiker, Jupiter, the full moon, Saturn and Mars, almost equally spaced out in the southern sky. Now remember, if you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them in to at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But for now, it's time for our cosmic news. So welcome back to the cosmic news part of our podcast. This is where myself and Greg each month pick a new story that has broken in the astronomy world, uh, which we think is of interest. We're going to put our stories to the vote on Twitter once we've unleashed what we found to you guys. And we're going to want you guys to vote for your favorites. So to start off with then, Greg, what has your astronomy senses this month uh, in the news? So there's been a fairly big story this month, the potential discovery of uh, a galaxy which is completely devoid of dark matter, this mysterious substance that pervades the rest of our universe. Now, we've definitely got dark matter in our galaxy, and dark matter is believed to be in many galaxies, but this one just doesn't have any. Yes, absolutely. So to start with with what dark matter actually is. Um, So matter is anything that has mass, anything that provides a gravitational pull. Uh, We, as humans, are surrounded by what we call normal matter. Everything that we interact with on a day-to-day basis is made of normal matter. But that actually is a bit misleading, the name that we've given it. Uh, In reality, normal matter makes up a tiny fraction of the stuff in our universe. And I'm leaving that deliberately vague because... uh, Our universe is made out of all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff that we don't fully understand. So stuff is a particularly good word for it. About 70% of the stuff in our universe is something called dark energy. We're not certain what it is. We're not even certain that it really exists. So I'm not going to talk about that one anymore right now. It's far too complicated to get into today. About 5% is normal matter, which leaves about 25%, which is this dark matter. Dark matter has been suspected to exist since about the 1930s when a a Swiss astronomer called Fritz Zwicky was uh, examining something called the Coma Galaxy Cluster, a large cluster of galaxies deep off into space. He added up all of the the mass that he could see in this particular cluster and compared it with an independent measure of the mass of that cluster which he did by working out the speed of the galaxies flying around the cluster. So that's using almost Newton's laws. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a relatively simple maths. So if you know how quickly they're moving, you can work out their mass. Exactly, absolutely. And he realised that there was a, a very big discrepancy between the two. There was clearly, apparently, far, far more stuff inside this galaxy cluster than could be explained by the visible stuff that he could see. 
Now, actually, he was actually quite a way off. He, was, he way overestimated the amount of dark matter. And that was because of a, a relatively poor understanding of cosmology back in the 1930s. It definitely wasn't his fault. Since then, we've been able to refine our analysis, uh, both of the Coma Galaxy cluster and of um, other objects. So when we look at the rotation curves of galaxies, so how fast they're spinning, we can see evidence of this here. Um, when we look at... Uh, galaxies that are, or clusters that are bending light due to gravitational lensing. That's another way of measuring how much mass is there and we can show that there's more stuff there than there should be. So there are two possibilities. Either our understanding of gravity is completely wrong um, and maybe over very long distances gravity does something weird. It's possible. The other possibility is that there is this peculiar mysterious substance that we call dark matter which is outweighs us five to one uh, throughout the universe, which is a weird thing to think about, but seems the more likely of the two with the available evidence. We'll it's so ironic, later. isn't it? The, the one thing that we can't see and don't understand is actually probably the more likely explanation yeah. in this yeah, case. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And we don't know exactly what dark matter is. Originally, we thought it might be... Uh, just tallying up all of the, the planets and the asteroids and the, the dust and stuff that is very difficult to see. Not invisible, just very tough to see compared to the stars and the luminous gases that make up um, a lot of what we can see. But we've since realised that can't be true. Even the largest estimates of how much rock and other material there might be throughout the universe doesn't even come close to five times the luminous matter. So we're no, nowhere even near that. Which means it's more likely that dark matter is some form of subatomic particle. So a bit like an electron, a bit like a proton, but with some very, very weird properties. These dark matter particles don't emit light. They don't absorb light. So even if there's a vast amount of dark matter blocking your view of a star, you'll see, see, still see the star because it will pass straight through. It has no effect on it other than potentially to bend the light because of its gravity. That's it. Uh, it also doesn't collide with things very often. So it doesn't collide with itself very often, and it doesn't appear to collide with normal matter very often either, to the point of it being almost non-existent, these collisions. Very, very rare. This dark matter is making itself very tricky for us to find, isn't it? Exactly. The only thing that we do know that it does, with any reasonable certainty, is that it has a lot of gravity. So it has a lot of mass and a big gravitational pull. In fact, that's actually very important. Uh, without its gravity, galaxies would not have formed, according to our current understanding of physics. So around every galaxy, there is a, a large halo of dark matter, much, much bigger in size, but also in mass than the galaxy itself. And this typically forms part of a much larger structure of strings or webs or filaments, as they're called, of dark matter that are the whole way through the universe. And wherever these filaments cross over... That's when you get a lot of stuff in a small region. It draws a lot of normal matter to it through its gravity and forms galaxies at those points. So that's how you end up with clusters and strings of galaxies throughout the universe. So that means that every galaxy should have a lot of dark matter around it in order to form a galaxy, right? But... But... <laughs> Astronomers led by Pieter von Dokum of Yale University have found a galaxy which is apparently devoid of dark matter. Uh, this galaxy is called NGC 1052 DF2. We'll just call it DF2 for short. It's more, uh, more than a little strange. Um, it's about the size of the Milky Way, 
but it has 200 times fewer stars in it. So it's very, very what we call diffuse. It doesn't. It's very spread out. Therefore, we probably assume its mass is a lot less too. That is probably true. Yeah, absolutely, and that's one of the reasons how we know that this thing is a relatively small galaxy by mass, even though if it's not by size. Uh, in fact, it's quite it's quite weird because you can actually see other galaxies through this galaxy, which is quite weird. Normally, gal- stars in galaxies are close enough together that that's not really possible. But this particular one, the stars are so spread out like that you can trans- see right through it. It's basically translucent. Yeah, the whole galaxy is sort of translucent, which is very, very strange. In, so in a similar way to how Zwicky analysed the coma cluster, Van Dokum's team added up the mass of the stuff in this particular galaxy and then compared that with the speed of clusters of stars that you can see sort of like... Um, uh, fruit embedded in a cake, sort of flying around the the the, the, the rest of uh, the galaxy, and by their reckoning, all of the speed of those clusters can be taken into account by just the visible matter in that galaxy. So there's no need for dark matter, which is weird, and potentially very very important. The first, re- the first reason is, how does a galaxy like this form in the first place? If dark matter is a requirement for forming a galaxy, how does this one form? Where did it come from? Yeah, you won't be surprised to discover that astronomers have a few ideas. Uh, one possibility is that it's material which was flung out during a merger of two larger galaxies a long time in the past. Loads of gas and dust got thrown out when these two galaxies collided with one another, and that eventually coalesced and formed into a new galaxy. It's possible, but there are some reasons why we don't think that's likely. Uh, Another possibility is that a jet of material ejected from one of these feeding supermassive black holes that seem to have become a staple of this podcast um, gathered material on its journey through space. That material then formed into a new galaxy. It's also possible but there are reasons why we think that's probably not the case either. So we don't really know what's going on with this galaxy. But there's something far more important. It's actually a test of whether dark matter exists in the first place. The main alternative to dark matter, which we mentioned earlier, is a, a different theory of gravity, which is called Modified Newtonian Dynamics, or MOND for short. And proponents suggest that gravity has not been understood properly, that maybe it does weird things over long distances, maybe it's not quite as simple simple <laughs> as we first thought. But in order for that to be the case, that would have to be true for every single galaxy, and indeed for every single point of mass in the universe, would have to follow this new law of gravity. Which means if you can find a galaxy where this new law doesn't appear to apply, it cannot apply sure. to any galaxy under the understanding that physics should be true throughout the rest of the universe. Yeah, exactly. Which means that instead there must be something which can be present in some circumstances and isn't present in others. In other words, a material, a substance, dark matter. So finding a galaxy that doesn't have dark matter in it would effectively prove that dark matter exists. Oh, Greg, (laughs) I think you've hurt our heads. So here's the question. Is this the final nail in the coffin of Mond, which has been for some time the less popular of the two? Uh, No, no, it isn't, unfortunately. It's still there. Uh, Not yet, anyway. 
Unfortunately, the dark matterless galaxy result has already been disputed. There are several papers uh, which have been published which suggest that uh, this analysis was actually flawed in some way, that there's been a mistake made or something overlooked, uh, which happens. Astronomy is a very, very complex subject. Mistakes do happen. So it may be the case that there is actually dark matter. Yeah, in it's entirely possible. Uh, the concept of the, the peer review process in astronomy and the way that the community works is that many astronomers with different scientific backgrounds will look at the problem and eventually they'll come to the truth. That's the hope anyway. In any case, uh, as I've said before on this podcast, any one result in science doesn't prove or disprove anything. It's only by looking at the entire literature, all of these different studies, many different repeated experiments, that you finally come to a result. So it's a very interesting result, but watch this space. I, I love there, the way you ended it. Yeah. <laughs> watch, let's just watch and see what happens. Well, it's still a really fascinating story that you found this month. Um, I'm going to see if I can beat that. Okay, go so, for it. So something that caught my attention this month was uh, a glitch that was detected in the regular sort of pulsing beat of uh, a rapidly rotating neutron star. So these mm -hmm. are commonly known as pulsars. pulsars yeah. So um, these pulsars are spinning very quickly and they emit uh, these pulses. We can detect them and they are thought to be very regular. But sometimes we see these glitches. So to start off with, what is a pulsar? Well, uh, when a typical star ends its life, there are one of three possibilities. So uh, a small star like our sun will eventually uh, very slowly give off its outer layers of gas. It will expand into a red giant star, eventually leaving behind a small, compact white dwarf star. Uh, this is um, a quiet uh, expiry of a star. It's like a, a flame going out. It's not very dramatic. Larger stars, though, they end their lives with supernovae. And if there's enough mass left over from that star at the end, it will turn into a black hole. Mm -hmm. But if a star is originally large enough to become or to go supernova, but there isn't enough mass left for it to become a black hole, mm -hmm. that's when we get our neutron star. Now, neutron stars are so-called uh, because essentially they're made of neutrons. But this isn't because it was originally containing neutrons. They're actually formed as that star kind of compacted and died. So it's got very strong gravity. It forces electrons around an atom to be pushed into the nucleus. We know that nucleus uh, of atoms or nuclei of atoms contain the protons and the neutrons. Well, when the electrons combine with the protons, they make a neutron. So, so we all, all get squashed yeah, down together. And we're creating lots and lots of neutrons. <laughs> and as we move towards the center, you'll get a very neutron dense uh, region. Uh, and as you get closer and closer to the center, you're getting more and more of those fusion of the electrons and protons. Now, the reason a neutron star doesn't collapse in on itself like a black hole is because of something known as neutron degeneracy pressure. So in a, a normal kind of living star, it's fusion and uh, the kind of pressure and the radiation released from that process that holds it up against gravity. And from the, the, the heat, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, but in a, in a star that has ended its life, you don't have fusion, you don't have heat being generated. Uh, so what's happening in this case is the neutrons and the pressure from these neutrons is what's holding up the star. And it's something to do with uh, the Pauli exclusion principle. So this is going into quantum <laughs> mechanics. It basically states that, uh, along with some other atoms, if you, if you have two neutrons, they can't occupy the same identical state. So when they're pushed together or forced together due to gravity, they will kind of push themselves apart to keep themselves apart. That's that pressure that's holding the neutron star up. 
And it's only when the mass of that neutron star exceeds something known as the Oppenheimer limit, which is roughly thought to be about two to three times the mass of our star. That's when the pressure from these neutrons just can't hold up that star anymore. It'll collapse on itself and it will become a black hole. Now, they say neutron stars are some of the densest objects in our universe. So a teaspoon of material would be the same mass as every human living here on our planet, about one trillion kilograms. Now, I can't imagine in my head how massive that is, um, but it's taking roughly two to three times the mass of our sun, the material in our sun, and cramming it to something that fits inside inner London, something about 20 kilometers wide. There, hopefully, we get an idea of how compact these stars actually are. Pretty small. Now, they rotate rapidly. Some of them take a couple of milliseconds to rotate once on their axis. Some of them take up to a few seconds. So they have different rotation speeds. But just like an ice skater tucking in their arms and they end up rotating faster, as a neutron star uh, is dying and it's collapsing in on itself, that's what makes it spin very quickly. It's compacting Mm. and uh, falling in on itself. Uh, Now, neutron stars also have very large or massive magnetic fields, sometimes trillions of times what we have here on our own planet. And so they emit radiation from both ends of uh, of that star, that pulsar. Now, at the poles, the magnetic field accelerates charged particles. They're blasted off in a stream of jets. uh, And it's mostly radio emission that we see from these pulsars. uh, So they are very strong radio sources. And that's what we're detecting. Now, the jets that are kind of, the jets of charged material that are flung out creating these radio waves aren't uh, in line necessarily with the, the axis of rotation of the neutron star. And so it means that if one of the poles of the, the neutron star is actually sweeping in the direction of Earth while the star is spinning, then we will see a brief flash of radiation every time it rotates. And that's why these stars are called pulsars. They're pulsing out their radiation, a bit like a lighthouse may pulse out beams yes. of light. Yeah. Now, um, some of them, like I said, can rotate very rapidly. They're called millisecond pulsars. They spin very, very quickly, and because they also have a great amount of mass, they have lots of angular momentum. So angular momentum is a property that depends on the mass and the angular velocity of an object, Uh, and if something has lots of angular momentum, it's harder to slow down. You can't stop it spinning. So these millisecond pulsars are very hard to slow down, and they take years for their spin rates to actually slow And so in the past, they were actually thought uh, to rival the stability of atomic clocks. We use atomic clocks as precise measuring instruments because pulsars spin very regularly. uh, They're thought to be uh, somewhat of the same sort of timekeepers, but actually atomic clocks have surpassed pulsars in their accuracy now. Now, the story in this case is about that pulsar that has glitched. Now, about 5% of pulsars are known to glitch. Now, every so often, this glitch is basically an appearance of uh, a speed up in the rotation of this pulsar. So it's rotating regularly, and every so often, it might just speed up. Um, And these are unpredictable. No pulsars yet have actually been observed with radio telescopes that are large enough to observe the individual pulses. So we can see them speeding up from time to time, but we've not been able to necessarily record the pulses individually as that happens. Now, the Vela pulsar is a famous example. It's thought to kind of glitch every three years or so, and uh, that's when it speeds up in rotation. This pulsar has a frequency of 11.2 hertz. 
So that means it's rotating 11.2 times every single second. It's about a thousand light years away and it was created after a supernova that went off about 11,000 years ago. So the detection was made by uh, a man called Jim Palfreyman from the University of Tasmania in Australia. He read he led the research on trying to catch this velar pulsar glitching in live action. So he wanted to catch it glitching as it happened. He used the University of Tasmania's 26-metre radio telescope at their Mount Pleasant Observatory in Tasmania itself, and he was collecting data over nearly a period of four years. So he definitely wanted to catch that three-year cycle that we thought that the Vela Pulsar would be glitching in. Now, this data was collected uh, and processed and analysed as it was coming in. Uh, now, one night, he, uh, his automated process alerted him to a glitch that had gone off. But it had been known that um, sometimes other radio frequency signals can set it off. So he wasn't uh, immediately jumping for joy. He thought it could have been set off in error. So middle of the night, he ran the test again to be sure. And in fact, it was a genuine result. Uh, now, what did those results show? Well, the glitch or the sudden increase in the rate of how fast this neutron star pulsar was spinning, what actually happened is as that glitch occurred, a pulse wasn't recorded. There was no pulse to be seen. Now, the pulse just before that was actually much broader and wider than anyone had seen before for this velar pulsar. And the two pulses after that null result uh, actually um, had no linear or plane polarization. Now, when we think of uh, light waves traveling, we think of them as kind of waves moving up and down in one kind of plane. They're not moving from side to side as well, but in this case, they weren't moving from just in one plane. They were moving in all sorts of directions. And again, this was unheard of for this pulsar, so a new kind mm. of result. Now, this glitch, or this, this actually meant that the glitch had in fact affected the magnetic field around this pulsar because it's the magnetic field that actually that drives... causes the polarisation, yes. Exactly, the radiation itself. Now, what was also quite weird is the 21 pulses that followed that no pulse as the glitch arrived, uh, they actually arrived earlier than they should have, and the variance in their timings was much smaller than had been seen before. So there was clearly something different going on with the pulses that normally are very regular, but as this glitch occurred, something just before, something just after, and for a period after that as well, just wasn't fitting as anyone had expected. Mm. Now the cause of this glitch, uh, the best supported hypothesis, is that this Vela pulsar has a hard, and I use that term loosely, a hard crust, with inside uh, a superfluid core. Uh, now, a superfluid is something that has zero viscosity. So when it flows, it's not losing any kinetic energy. So almost the opposite of honey. If you try and swish around honey, it's not going anywhere. Whereas if you're, you're moving around a superfluid, it will carry on moving because it's not losing any of that kinetic energy. So in simple terms, what they're saying is that the outer crust of the pulsar is slowing down in its rotation so it's not as fast as the inner superfluid core which can rotate very quickly and doesn't lose any of that rotation um, but eventually when the difference between those two boundaries becomes too much the crust is actually forced to glitch and kind of catch up with the faster rotating inner superfluid core and that glitch is what they're seeing uh, in this case it's every three years now, just like all the astronomy we've talked about today, actually, it's more complicated than that, of course. <laughs> it involves something called microscopic 
superfluid vortices. <laughs> it hurts my head just saying it, Greg. This is another quantum phenomena. In a superfluid, the fluid rotates around what we call quantized vortex locations or lines. So if you think about, first of all, water in a glass and I'm spinning it around, all of the water in that glass will spin homogeneously. So all of it at the same time. In a superfluid, it's inhomogeneous. So imagine I put lines, vertical lines, from the bottom of the glass all over, a bit like um, studs on a football boot. Well, when, I, when that water is sloshing around in that glass, uh, if we're trying to imitate a superfluid, the fluid will actually rotate or spin around those individual lines, like those individual studs on a football boot. Right. And together or collectively, they will we'll be creating also, yeah, that rotation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's when these uh, kind of vortex lines are unpinned from the crust, that's when we get those glitches happening. So it's to do with these quantized <laughs> little lines uh, right. in a superfluid around which that fluid rotates. And it's to do with them unpinning or loosening from the crust, breaking off, that's causing that glitch to happen. So in this case, after roughly three years, the difference in rotation between the core and the crust becomes too great. The core ends up gripping on the crust and it speeds it up. And that's when we see this glitch observed. Now, this is giving us for the first time a, gli a glimpse into the inner workings of a neutron mm. star. Um, and it's all information that could actually help us understand something that is also known as the equation of state. Now, this is an equation which actually describes how matter behaves at different temperatures and different pressures. And neutron stars give us a lab that we can't create here on Earth. We mm -hmm. can't create the conditions of a neutron star. So we're basically using a lab, uh, a lab in space to help us understand uh, these physical principles. And it's also a step forward um, in not only understanding neutron stars and hopefully the behavior of matter in different conditions, but there's also more research to be done on these individual pulses while the glitch is happening. So like I mentioned, there was a broad and varied pulse just before the glitch happened. Uh, there was those pulses that appeared to be arriving earlier after the glitch happened. We still don't understand why those pulses changed and what's actually driving them to do that, why that regularity has changed when the glitch does. So it's all stuff, again, to watch out for. Watch this space. People will come and astronomers will find out more about uh, what's happening, hopefully, in these neutron stars. And our understanding will help, no doubt, other parts of the physics and astronomy world, too. Well, that was a fantastic story, Dara. Thanks for bringing it to our attention. And if you are listening to our podcast on iTunes and you enjoyed it, uh, then please do rate and subscribe to us if you would like to. Uh, the two stories that we gave in our Cosmic News section, they will be up for a vote on our normal Twitter poll. So go to at ROG Astronomers to take part in that. Uh, last month, we had two stories, of course. Uh, the Juno space probe was Dara's story, and I had the, the dead star that apparently came back to life. Uh, I'm afraid to say that Dara did win this one. 56% yes. of the vote went to her, and only 44% to me. So I think that's 3 2. I'm clawing uh, it back, Greg. The next podcast will be released at the start of June uh, on the first of the month. Uh, also, please check out our other podcasts on SoundCloud, including interviews with astronomers and space scientists. That's it for this month. See you next time for more from Look Up. Mm -hmm.